Welcome to DC EKG, where we diagnose the diseases affecting national healthcare policy and provide needed solutions. I'm here with Eric Euland. I'm Joe Grogan, and we want to thank our producer, John Swartaki, who is also the head of Survivors for Solutions, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization fighting to make every patient a survivor. And CZ also helps us pull this show together. Today, we're joined by Peter Nelson, an old friend personally and a friend of the show. And for all those who care about sound healthcare policy, Peter is somebody who is well known and his work is frequently quoted. Uh, everybody who's working in this area, if they're not on the phone with him, they're trying to collaborate with him on something. And he's one of the foremost experts on a number of aspects of healthcare policy. Um, I had the pleasure of working with him during the Trump administration, where he served as senior advisor to the CMS administrator, and he's currently a senior policy fellow at the Center of the American Experiment, where he focuses on both state and national healthcare policy. So I, w I wanted to get started, Peter, talking a little bit about the 2025 payment notice. And I was wondering if you you had recently put out some some comments about that. And then maybe once you talk about that, then we can talk a little bit about Medicaid redeterminations. There's been a lot of noise of it in the liberal media. So that's a good way to get started, I think. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the 2025 payment notice now, just for the listeners, the 2025 payment notice is an annual rule that the administration releases every year um, Obama, Trump, Biden, we, they all released this rule, and it includes basically new parameters for the insurance markets and insurance exchanges. And, and it's sort of a catch-all rule where um, an administration can sort of put in whatever sort of annual change they want to make to insurance regulations. And, and so it's, it often has, it always has something new to talk about. And so this year, um, the new thing to talk about, there's a couple things. Um, first, there's essential health benefits. Um, essential health benefits are the benefits that are required under the Affordable Care Act um, that every health plan needs to offer. There's a minimum threshold to essential health benefits. You got to include the essential. And there's a maximum amount. It has to be um, equal. It, it can't be no more than the typical amount that the typical employer plan has. Um, and so that's the essential health benefits that they're trying to change. And then we also have state-based exchanges. Um, state-based exchanges traditionally have sort of been left alone. Um, they're a partnership arrangement with the federal government. And, and so the federal government trusts states to take care of these things on their own. And it, that's how it's kind of operated. But within this federal rule, um, they're changing a lot of different requirements on the exchanges, which really amounts to a federal takeover of uh, these state-based exchanges. Uh, and, and so, and uh, on the essential health benefit side, they're really kind of going beyond what the typical employer plan looks like. And they're allowing states to basically go beyond that and expand the amount of benefits that are provided. And of course, when you expand the amount of benefits, you're increasing the cost and you're, you're basically putting at risk the affordability of- Well, Peter, aren't you also doing something else? Uh, aren't you making it more attractive for employers to dump healthcare coverage and for employees to clamor to get into the Affordable Care Act exchanges because they're so heavily subsidized by the federal government? 
Well, it is incredibly subsidized, yes. And so if it becomes, if the benefits become even more generous, and especially from the small group side, the small group health plans, it's becoming more challenging for an employer to offer a small group health plan. And, and anything you do to basically make the individual market for especially for lower income people more attractive than their small group plan, you're going to create um, some incentives for those employers to drop coverage because they'll know that, you know, their employees are actually going to be better off if they just get these generous subsidies with very generous coverage. Peter, specifically a little bit for both the health benefits and then for the state exchanges, unpack a little bit about what the Biden administration is actually doing here with their notice. And then is there a chance for changes to these proposals before the notice goes final or not? So on the essential health benefits side of things, um, they're basically saying that they're, they're introducing something to what's called defrayal. Defrayal is an important element of the ACA that makes sure that states don't add benefits because if a state is able to add benefits and increase the cost, that actually increases the cost of the federal taxpayer um, because that p- premium tax credits are based on the amount of premium. And, and so that's an important um, ceiling to how much the federal taxpayer is paying. And they're basically saying that if a state has a benefit in their in this benchmark, they have these benchmark plans. It gets kind of complicated, but um, but the gist of it is is that they're basically allowing states to not defray certain costs of new benefit mandates. And while this might the way that they portray it might sound like it's not going to impact um, premiums, it really does open the process to gaming. Um, where a state might be able to add a benefit in one year that doesn't increase costs, but it's going to stick around, and it's going to be and it's going to impact costs in later years. And the second dimension on the health on the essential health benefits is a much more clear example. They are requiring they're allowing states to permit um, the essential health benefits to include adult routine dental. Adult routine dental is not something that is included in nearly any traditional comprehensive major medical coverage. It's a separate um, insurance item that employers offer. And so it's not typical in any way to a major medical coverage. And yet they are permitting this. And in fact, when you look at, there's actually 10 essential health benefits. And one of the 10 essential health benefits that the, the law outlines includes pediatric dental. And so it, the law actually understands that, you know, maybe this dental stuff isn't uh, typical, but we want kids to have it. And so they've actually carved out kids. And, and now the administration is ignoring that and just throwing in adult dental too, which is going to substantially increase the cost of premiums. So dental, I'm sure, is, uh, polls very popularly. But to your point, when a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president passed this Obamacare law, 13, 14 years ago, they kept that out of the healthcare coverage. How is the Biden administration able now to add, propose adding it in? Well, to me, they've made some some pretty stretch arguments uh, when it comes to this, because they've, they're now trying to argue that it is typical these days. They, they reference um, surveys from the Kaiser Family Foundation. They do an annual survey of employer benefits. And they reference the fact that now like uh, something 
you know, probably over 90% of large employers offer dental benefits. But when you look at the survey, the survey is very clear that these are separate benefits. And not only are they separate benefits, but they're not necessarily paid for by the employer. Um, oftentimes, an employer will offer dental benefits and just as an option that the employee can pay out of their own pocket, basically. Um, and it's just a good option because every all, when all the employees buy this together, it's better than what they could get on their own. Thanks. And just quickly, again, for the state changes, if you have a moment to walk through some of the specifics. And then also, is there an opportunity for change here before this proposal goes final? Yeah, the state changes are focused around a lot of things that used to be that there are certain things that the federal government has required the federal exchange to do. And and there's but then they didn't transfer that to the state exchanges. And so there's a couple of key things that they're doing uh, right now. And one of the, the the biggest things they're doing is they're basically taking over network adequacy determinations. Now, every insurance plan. If you buy insurance, you expect your insurance plan to have an adequate network so you can actually see a doctor when when you need them. Um, so it's a reasonable regulation to have, and states have generally been uh, the taking the lead on assessing network adequacy. And now the administration, and, and this is something under the Trump administration, that we basically said, look, the federal government's duplicating what the states are doing. And so one of the initial things we did um, out of the gates was to say, look, we're not going to duplicate what states are already doing. They're doing a good job. Um, let's just defer to states on this issue. So that's something we did. And now the Biden administration is reversing that and basically saying, no, we are going to take that back and we are going to not only take it back, but we are going to um, take a more aggressive approach to network adequacy. That looks a lot like the network adequacy requirements that we do with Medicare Advantage right now and so some pretty strict time and place uh, uh requirements on like it shouldn't take you more than a certain amount of time to drive to the doctor and that sort of thing and the trouble is is that cms is in washington dc um i live in minnesota i know before the affordable care act passed we had a serious issue in northern minnesota um with the networks for our blue cross plan and this was an issue that took some time to work through with state regulators and state regulators were exactly the right people to do this because they live in Minnesota. They know the region in Northern Minnesota. They know the hospitals in Northern Minnesota and CMS. I worked at CMS. These are really good people working at CMS, but they just don't have the capacity to understand the Minnesota market and all other uh, markets in the other 50 states and even maybe in DC, frankly. Um, they just don't have that capacity. So with this rate notice now out and these alterations proposed by the Biden administration, how long does it take before this notice becomes final? And again, are there ways to modify it or put in uh, requests for changes and improvements? So right now, it's the comment period recently ended on this rule. And so they're right now finalizing it. And so there are, there may be some changes to the rule going forward. However, traditionally, once they've decided on what they're going to do, they do it. And to the extent they make modifications, they're usually mo only minor modifications. Um, so you can kind of expect that what they proposed is 
going to be what they finalize. And, and to the, as far as the timing is concerned, it's the 2025 payment notice. And so it generally speaking applies to 2025 um, health plans. To sum up, um, it sounds like CMS is taking over more state responsibility and porting it into Baltimore and Washington, D.C., federalizing more of traditionally yes. uh, state, more, more traditional state functions in healthcare. That is absolutely a fair statement. Across the board, they are taking back a lot of flexibility that the Trump administration gave to states. And every rule we see them take back more flexibility and more authority from states. Are they going beyond what the Trump administration provided states? Or is it even beyond the Obama administration? Or is it just trying to return things to status quo ante? Oh, they're definitely going beyond the Obama administration. For instance, um, the Obama administration, and this is another, this is a big issue in insurance markets, and it's the issue around whether health plans should be required to offer a standardized plan. Um, the Obama administration started this process and developed a standardized plan, and it created this plan, and health plans were supposed to offer it, and the exchanges were to, supposed to highlight this plan for people. And the idea behind this that from the left is that you know, people need, need to have a, a standardized plan to be able to compare. Um, if it's not standardized, it's hard to compare. And, and that was what the Obama administration really pushed, was to be able to have these plans that could compare across, different, across your different health plans on the market and we thought that was unnecessary under the Trump administration. That was just, that was getting into health plan design. Um, that's not something the government's usually good at. Um, health plans are in that business. We should let them design their own plans. So we pulled back on that. And um, the Biden administration reversed that. And they've moved into basically requiring standardized plans on the market. And, but then they have now pushed it much further. Um, not only are health plans required to offer standardized plans, they're actually now limited to offering only two other options across their different types of products. And so... What's the rationale behind that? I'm sorry. The I, rationale... I think I can see so Eric, have, Eric is vibrating because he wants yeah. to get in, but I'm like freaking yeah. out. Yeah, oh, so it's... The rationale is... And this the Obama administration discussed this, but they didn't act on this. Um, they didn't limit the number of plans. So the Biden administration is limiting the number of plans because they feel like consumers have choice overload. Um, <laughs> there's just too many options in the market. You don't know how to make a decision. And so you don't make a decision at all. And so the argument is that these people go without coverage because they can't make a decision. Well, Peter, that's exactly why the Soviet automobile industry was so successful, right? They gave so <laughs> few choices to people that they dominated the world in automobile manufacturing and everybody wanted a Soviet automobile, right? Lack of choice is good. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, okay. Now I get it. I'm sorry. I didn't, yeah, I didn't, no. I didn't, I wasn't tracking before we, before you, you walked me through that. Okay. Well, I'm glad we cleared that one up. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody get ready to enjoy your Soviet Trabi of healthcare in years to come. It sounds like in a world where the administration, the Biden administration is acting this way here and apparently across a wide variety of domestic policy fronts, when it comes to this, are there any effective checks 
on this continued recentralization, this further federalizing of what were state and private sector roles and responsibilities to make sure people were covered appropriately with health care? Well, right now, I mean, there's there's, of course, an election. That's an important check. Um, and and there is also a judicial check. I have noted throughout since the Biden administration took over and started finalizing a lot of these rules, several of these rules I would call illegal. I think several of the rules are an overstep and should be litigated. Unfortunately, we haven't seen really any litigation against a lot of these rules, even even though some of the, uh, what they've done is more than a stretch. It's just blatantly illegal. Uh, and so so that's unfortunate. We haven't seen more litigation. The left is certainly eager, was certainly eager to litigate the Trump administration uh, efforts, even though they were definitely well within the bounds of the law. Um, and and so that's that's definitely one check. So and that's really those are the checks in our system. Do you think if the Supreme Court overturned Chevron deference, which I think a lot of people think is likely or narrowing of Chevron deference. Is it more likely that some of these rules could get struck down? You know, I think it could be more likely that litigation would happen. I do think that's probably one of the things that stops people from litigating because there's always an argument about how to interpret statute. Right. Um, they, they're not pushing they're, they If they have a colorable argument for what they're doing, they do it. And if you're sitting back and thinking, do I put resources into litigation? Well, and think, well, right now, the current law, the federal the judiciary is supposed to defer to their analysis of the statute, then um, then you're not going to litigate nearly as much, even if it seems uh, pretty clear that they're uh, misinterpreting the statute. Um, even if that's clear, they still get deference under the current legal framework. And so Chevron, a change in Chevron deference could have an impact. Um, the Affordable Care Act, though, however, is a little bit different than a lot of laws. Um, and there is this back and forth of, of rulemaking, uh, reversing uh, one administration, reversing the other, and, um, and that basically a cycle of that happening is kind of baked into the Affordable Care Act. And, and, that's, and that a court's not going to change that because there's a substantial amount of discretion in the Affordable Care Act that's given to the executive branch. Right. And they can do what they want. And courts have said that. Um, uh, the best example right now I think that I have is uh, the short-term limited duration insurance requirements that we put in place. So um, short-term limited duration is, is insurance that is fairly unregulated and not subject to Affordable Care Act requirements, which means it can be very, it's a lot cheaper than Affordable Care Act insurance. And so for people who don't get subsidies, it often was the only option. And so the Trump administration made sure that they had that option. We reversed a late Obama rule that reduced the amount of time short-term could be defined as from, we, we, they reduced the time from 12 months to three months. We went back to 12 months and allowed extensions. And now the Biden administration is going back to three months. Well, we were sued on that. And the judge just said, you know, hey, look, you might not like it, but there's that amount of discretion in the law. Right. And by saying there's that amount of discretion in the law, it just it allowed this cycle to happen. And so now we're about to probably see short term 
get redefined as three months versus 12 months. Right. It, and of course, the rationale and and on that is, um, you know, the, the left spent a lot of time demonizing short term limited duration insurance as, quote unquote, junk insurance. But uh, my view at the time was, look, if if people are buying it, who are we to say that it's it's junk? They're putting their own money behind it. And I knew a lot of people who were very well educated and making decent money who chose it because of the the nature of their work and because they didn't have the subsidies. Um, as somebody yeah. who'd gone who'd gone without insurance in my life, based upon the the my own career choices when I was young, um, it would have been a good option for me, uh, no question about it. But let's talk about let's talk about Medicaid redeterminations for a second because. This is, I think, really fascinating for a number of reasons because um, it it sweeps in a lot of the stuff that happened during COVID, uh, and with with special rules that were put in place. But the other thing, Peter, I I think that I've I've witnessed during this, there's been all this talk in Kaiser Family Foundation and among reporters who cover uh, healthcare from the left or left leaning think tanks that the right is wanting to throw people off Medicaid with the Medicaid redeterminations and the end of the public health emergency and a lot of these things. So you see this media campaign to uh, to frame Medicaid determinations in a certain way. And I was wondering if you could put this into perspective about what is really occurring out there in uh, in the marketplace. Yeah. So what's happening right now in the marketplace is, and, and really not the marketplace within the Medicaid program, um, is that there's people that have coverage that don't even know they have coverage. So stepping back. Um, so in 2021, when the Biden administration took over, um, they passed some laws and, on, to, on COVID. And part of this, one of these laws basically said that if a state wants some extra money, um, for their Medicaid program, they have to agree to not drop people from Medicaid coverage, even if they become ineligible. So it's the continuous coverage requirement. Um, and so you've all these people who have been kept on the Medicaid rolls through now, we are now in our third year, basically, of this continuous coverage requirement. And they've been on this coverage because states just haven't been allowed to kick them off and but in the meantime, you've had a lot of people transition from one from one job to the next. Their incomes change. All of a sudden, they um, they qualify for premium tax credits. They take the premium tax credits instead of the Medicaid coverage because that might be better coverage for them. They get a new job. They take that coverage. That might be better for them. And yet they're still on the Medicaid program, and we're still paying for them on the Medicaid program. And so they've got double coverage. And, and that's what we're seeing right now. You've got all these people in the program that have double coverage. And so when we're talking about redeterminations, we have to understand that most of the people that are going through this redetermination process and getting removed from Medicaid coverage should be removed from Medicaid coverage because they already have coverage. Or if, even if they, if they don't have coverage, they have access to coverage. Um, and they have just chose not to access coverage. So that's a key point, uh, Peter, because it, the law is written the way it is. 
that if you have access to coverage, you like say through an employer, you're supposed to use that coverage rather than go and uh, use money that the taxpayer use taxpayer money for healthcare services. Correct. I mean, that's why it's written that way. You don't want somebody yep. just using Medicaid uh, when they already have coverage. So what is the, why is the left going, this seems like common sense. Why is the left going berserk? I mean, absolutely berserk that this is a, a healthcare tragedy and people are, and the other distinction I want to draw here, losing coverage or having coverage does not mean having access. I can have insurance coverage, but if I don't have access to doctors that I need, then it doesn't matter. So the simply because somebody is redetermined to not be eligible for Medicaid, that doesn't mean they don't have access to health care by, by any means. So why is the left going berserk about this? Well, I think one of the reasons why they're going berserk is just the nature of the left. And, and I, I, I go back to something called the precautionary principle. This is something that you see in, in the environmental space, where the idea is that, look, you shouldn't take any action if there's uh, a risk of harm um, until you really can prove that there's going to be no harm. And it sounds reasonable, but the left takes this, you shouldn't act until you've basically shown there's no risk of harm to the, to the basically nth degree where it has to be zero risk of harm. And, and so you stop. And so in the environmental space, you basically stop doing things that are productive and, and support the economy uh, because you want zero risk of environmental harm. And in the Medicaid space, um, I've seen this at the state level a lot in Minnesota, where you basically were certain state policies, if there is even the tiniest risk that someone might find it a little more difficult to get coverage through Medicaid, that policy, if that policy does that, then that the left will oppose that policy militantly. And you see that at the state level all the time. And this is the same thing. This is, there is... There is a small, tiny risk that some people might find it more difficult to get coverage um, when things get redetermined, because there are some people who will get removed that are eligible. That that will happen, um, and it's not a perfect system. There is no perfect system, and, and and they just they want things to be perfect though. They don't want to have any risk, and and they don't care about the tax dollars, and and that's why. That's that's the biggest reason why, I think. So, but Peter, isn't part of the purpose of redetermination trying to ensure that those who truly qualify for Medicaid are able to access Medicaid, reduce stress on the Medicaid system by not having people dual, dually eligible decide that I'm going to stay away from the private sector or employer-sponsored or other opportunities for healthcare, instead be in Medicaid, and provide challenges for Medicaid directors around the country as they're trying to juggle resources that come to them from the federal government and the state governments in order to cover the most difficult, in some cases, circumstances for indigent poor people who really straight up qualify or eligible for Medicaid, but might have a problem accessing it without the redetermination process in place. 
Yes, absolutely. And what you've identified is the fact, of course, that there are trade-offs for every decision you make. And in the environmental space, with this precautionary principle, if you don't allow certain activities to happen, you undermine the economy and there's a trade-off there. Um, and you can harm people who you think you're helping. Um, and in this case, it's the same thing. You are, there's a trade-off here. You are putting a strain. If, you, if you're increasing the cost of Medicaid by allowing people to stay on Medicaid that are not eligible, um, you are increasing that cost and resources are scarce. Um, state budgets, especially, um, have trouble meeting their needs. Um, they have balanced budget requirements. The federal government doesn't have that, but states do. They have trouble getting adequate funding for all of their programs, and Medicaid included. And when um, you increase the cost of Medicaid for states, they have trouble funding not only Medicaid, but other important items like education and roads. And putting up obstacles to redeterminations makes this even harder. And we've We've seen this at the state level. I mean, it's a very similar issue. It's almost identical issue. Um, we, I push forward policies in Minnesota to require periodic data matching in our Medicaid program. Um, and that was fought. What's data matching? So periodic data matching is just basically matching people in the Medicaid program to different data sources to make sure that their incomes are still at the level that let them qualify. And if they look at social security income, data or or other uh, private data sources that show that their incomes have risen, then they get removed from the rolls. And if it's even if we're just removing 2%, that's a big part of the budget. That's a large amount of money because this is the largest budget item in most states. Okay, let's move on since we've, we've talked a little bit about um, the media and the way they frame this redetermination issue. Let's talk a little bit about what we're gonna see. This is an election year for those of us who are paying attention and, and those people who care. Was it November there were, uh, President Trump was quoted as um, saying that he wanted to revisit the Affordable Care Act. Boom, the left-wing media came out and said, oh, he wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act. He wants to deny people coverage. And then the Biden administration has been pushing out um, notices about this. And they recently came out with this MAGA threat to healthcare. You were at CMS. I want to talk a little bit about your um, experience there. You started at CMS right away, right? 2017? I started in December of 2017. I just, I started basically immediately after repeal and replace um, fell apart. And, and that is when the administration went to basically work on, okay, what are our administrative options? When the, the Trump administration came in in 2017, the exchanges were not all that healthy, correct? And immediately there was a rule done called the exchange, was it called the ACA stabilization rule colloquially, um, to try and keep staunch the bleeding in the Affordable Care Act. Now, Biden is characterizing what the Trump administration did as undermining the ACA. But could you talk a little bit about the state of the exchanges um, from your perch in as an observer and then coming in? Like, because you must have been having conversations with people about you were going to join the administration and you're a healthcare expert. So you're watching it on the outside and then you're thinking about what to do. 
what was the shape of the ACA exchanges at the beginning of the Trump administration? Well, the ACA exchanges and the individual marketplace overall was in chaos. I mean, that that's the term we used in the administration, and it was a correct term. It was not hyperbole. Um, we had in 2017, and remember 2017, all of the health plans were baked in 2017 when, when Trump took office. All, 2017 was entirely um, regulated on, by the Obama administration. And moving into 2017, we had now seen a couple years of premium increases, but we saw huge premium increases in 2017. Um, premiums, I, premiums jumped by um, jumped to $467 on average in 2017. That's up from $242 in 2013. Now, listeners need to remember that 2013 was the last year where we were under the old regulatory uh, process. Um, the new requirements kicked in in 2014. And so from 2013 to 2017, premiums rose by 93% from $242 to $467. Now, when why did that happen? Claims were uh, way more than people thought they would be. And so they had to raise premiums to cover claims. There were substantial losses that insurance companies were experiencing. Um, a lot of insurance companies couldn't maintain those losses and they started to flee the market. And in 2017, um, we were seeing, we were seeing the possibility of some places in the country not having insurance products for sale. Um, and going into 2018, we did a lot of work to make sure that didn't happen, but still going into 2018, because of all that chaos, you had over half the counties in America that only had one insurance plan um, on offer. So there's no competition in half of the insurance in the half of the counties across America. And on top of all of that, when you think about these premiums, um, some people weren't uh, were held harmless because they had premium subsidies. But people who didn't have premium subsidies were under extreme stress, and that led to you know they couldn't afford it. So they ended up leaving the market. And we found that from by 2019, so this is, I think, between 2016 and 2019, during this process of market upheaval, 44% of the unsubsidized market left. We, there's 2.8 million people in America that said, you know what? I can't afford this. I'm leaving the market. Um, I need to find a better way to get coverage. And, and that's what was happening in 2017. That's what we were uh, looking at. This, this wasn't a functional system in 2017. The media, of course, didn't want to recognize that. Um, and so we were skewered for sabotaging the market um, when everything we were doing was to save the market. And, you know, Trump, as Trump at one point said, I mean, we're trying to make the market as best we we operate as best we can under the current rules. Um, and that's what we were doing. We were doing the best we could to make it work. So we, so we came in and the stabilization rule was baked during the transition. Yep. Um, I wasn't on the transition team and I started, I wasn't there in January. I think the, the stabilization rule came out in January or maybe the first week in February. It was pretty quick um, that that thing dropped. And it started, it had some marginal effect, but the direct directionally uh, insurance companies had a signal, okay, help is on the way. Yeah. Okay, so Nelson, um, 
after, so you start in December of 2017, um, and we don't have a ton, we don't have too much time left, but I just want to, if you can just spend a couple minutes on what you spent um, your three years, were you there three years? I was there the rest of the term there. Yep. Okay. So what, how would you characterize what you were doing and trying to do from a regulatory perspective vis-a-vis um, the Affordable Care Act? Were you trying to sabotage or were you going in there every day, Peter, and saying, geez, I really want to sabotage people's health care? You know, um, if, if I was trying to sabotage it, I failed. Um, and I'd like to think I'm not a failure um, at what I do. Um, so I, I, no, obviously not. Uh, you know, what, what kind of person goes into a job and tries to make something worse for people? Um, it, it was, it's crazy to me that media just, people are supposed to be straight media would just pick up on that and say, that's what we're doing and use that word. Um, it's truly offensive um, that someone would say I was sabotaging what was going on. We were doing everything we could to make things work as best as it could. And with understanding that the law had fundamental flaws and, and, but it was the law. And so one of the things we did though, there, there was, we had a couple key strategies. First off, we were trying to give states, give, give authority back to states. Um, we took several steps to give authority back to states. We let them have that, as we already discussed, network adequacy uh, oversight back. Um, but another thing we did was we, we've issued new guidance on what are called 1332 waivers. Um, these allow states to, um, to develop their own alternatives to the ACA. In fact, the ACA, the text of the ACA calls them alternative state programs. Um, these are supposed to be in place of certain things in the ACA and, re- and allow them to waive certain requirements of the ACA. The Obama administration had taken a very narrow view of what could be waived. And so we issued new guidance to expand that. And we eventually put that into federal regulation um, and we issued some waiver concepts to allow states to figure out how they can maybe improve their markets. And one of the things that we worked on is we made sure that all states knew that they could do what was called a reinsurance waiver. And this was a huge improvement for states. A reinsurance waiver is basically a way for states to reconfigure how subsidies are structured. Uh, these premium subsidies are structured in their, in their market. And I won't get into too many details, but it's basically... Um, it's a partnership where if the state puts up some money, they can reframe some, some of the federal subsidies to support reinsurance that brings down the premiums in the entire market, um, for everybody, which makes it more affordable for everybody in the market. So all these unsubsidized people we were talking about earlier that were leaving the market, the 2.8 million people that left the market, we were making things more affordable for them. And I can tell you, I was actually part of the reinsurance program that got built in Minnesota uh, before I went to the administration. And in 2014, Minnesota had the lowest premiums in the country. Um, by 2017, when we were working on this in Minnesota, we were we dropped to a 37th. We went from first to 37th because of the chaos that Obamacare uh, pushed. And we put this reinsurance program in place and from 2017 to 2019, Minnesota premiums went from 37th back to number one, the most affordable in the country in 2019. And it's a, it was a powerful... 
Gee, Peter, it sounds like you care about people. You're not trying to. Oh uh, yeah, you know, we're trying to make it work better. We made things better. We did, and and we did, and we also did some things. And this this is where a lot of people claim sabotage, but it was absolutely about making sure the market worked. Was we tightened rules on enrollment periods. Um, the one of the things with the Affordable Care Act is that it has requirements on insurance companies to offer coverage to everybody at the same price, basically. Um, it's community rating and guaranteed issue uh, uh, regulations. And you can't, if you do that without anything else, you basically push the market off the edge because people can time when they get enrolled and they can wait until they get sick until they enroll. And so the Affordable Care Act to avoid that had the individual mandate. You also have the premium subsidies that basically get people to get in um, and not care about the cost. And so that helps get some people in. But enrollment periods were important in this regard because it told people, look, you've got to get coverage during this month and a half of the year um, or you don't get coverage. And so if you get sick in the middle of the year, you're not going to get coverage. So it creates that incentive to enroll. It creates an incentive to have continuous coverage. Um, and the Obama administration had been pretty lax with those requirements. And so we actually required... There's also special enrollment periods that if you have a certain circumstance during the year, um, like say you lose your job, you lose coverage for your job, you get a, you can enroll in coverage then because of that special circumstance. But there was no verification uh, of whether you actually qualified. So people would just say that this happened and enroll. And so there was a lot of gaming and we, and we were hearing that from insurance companies. We tightened that up. Um, we were criticized because we weren't allowing people to get to enroll, but that is a necessary element of the Affordable Care Act to make sure people aren't gaming it and making sure what people call a death spiral happens in the insurance market where uh, the healthy people leave uh, and premiums go up and then health, other healthy people have to leave the next year because they still can't afford it. All of a sudden, you just have a sick pool that's completely affordable to right. everybody. So let me let's pivot in just the last few minutes because you have got so much experience with you know stabilizing a dysfunctional healthcare market at the federal and the state level. Um, it's my thesis that we're beginning to see that in the Part D program after the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, with the way that the uh, Congress restructured the, the cost sharing and, and pulled the taxpayer out a part of it and put more risk onto the payers, which frankly I supported, but didn't support with the, the way that the Democrats end up ramming it through. I mean, I, I did want less taxpayer exposure and I did want a readjustment of it, but the way that the rest of the program and the way the timeline that they did that under has really been, uh, I think we're starting to see evidence of, of destabilization and we're going to see more of it. I don't know if you've looked at that at all. And if you're starting to think about if, if we're going to see a redux of what we saw in the Affordable Care Act in Part D, and have you started to think about how that might be stabilized moving forward? So I have not paid very close attention to what's going on with Medicare Part D. Um, in, the, in my state-based think tank role, I really focus on that commingling of federal and state policy and in, and that's really all about the private insurance market space um in the medicare part d space um yes i mean i i, I understand I, I remember you know that happened um under 
under that new law where basically they've they reduced a lot of cost sharing um and and that's actually one of the reasons why from my perspective why prescription drugs don't go up as much in price as you see hospital uh prices go up over the past over several years people do have to pay something out of pocket that helps to control costs and if you can just get free access to everything um, without any sort of um, re financial responsibility, then all of a sudden you're going to create the wrong incentive structure. And so to the extent that Medicare Part D changes change the incentive structure to make the, the patient um, care less about the finances, yeah, you're, you're going to ultimately end up with a, probably a similar path that the ACA has uh, been on where premiums just keep going up and up and up. Mm -hmm. Eric, you want to bring us home? Uh, sure. And Peter, thanks very much for your time on the podcast, as well as these great explanations on health policy. We want you to come back. There's a lot more to unpack about what the Biden administration's done here over the past four years and ways to tackle that so that people get the quality health care coverage that they deserve. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation, and I do look forward to being back with you. Absolutely. Great. Thanks, Peter. We'd like to thank Survivors for Solutions, our intrepid producer, John C.Z. Swartaki, our system producer, Eli Levy, our distribution partner, Big Week Media, and our production team, Evergreen. On behalf of DCEKG and host Joe Grogan, this is Eric Ewald. Thanks for listening to DCEKG. We'll be talking.